0: We are going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning, Mark chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13, page 844 in that blue church Bible, if you're using that Bible. You guys remember a time, I don't know, I'm looking for some... I don't see Tom and Anita. They're, they would definitely know this, but uh, there was a time when you could go to the theater with your entire family and not have to take out a second mortgage in order to pay the ticket price and the exorbitant cost for a bucket of popcorn and a large drink. You know what I'm saying? I I have always been a, a movie. I remember all the way back, my parents were taking me before I even understood what was going on. I was in my car seat. This is what they tell me. I don't remember. And they were taking me to Jaws. It was one of the (laughs) premieres of Jaws. I'm glad I don't remember. But I've always been in the movies. And one of the things about movies that have always excited me is, is the previews. They do it a little bit different now. You get 20 minutes of commercials, which are rather bothersome because they're trying to put those in wherever they can, Ryan. You know what I'm saying? He's in advertising, so he understands what I'm saying. But um, the previews were always exciting to me growing up to see what was coming out in the future. And, and you, would, you would get excited and go, wow, that's something to look forward to, right? As you, as you see, maybe 30 seconds, 20 seconds of this two-hour movie. In fact, there's an incredible art if you study this and the people that actually pick out the elements of the movie that they are going to show you to make sure they don't show you too much to give the movie away and they don't show you too little that you don't have enough taste in your mouth to want to come back and devour and pay that exorbitant price for that movie ticket. But people will get excited about previews and they will uh, think about and anticipate and talk about the movie that's coming out in December or the summer blockbuster. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the same way, we are going to be looking at something that was designed to act like a movie preview this morning, which we refer to as the transfiguration. It was a preview of what was to come, and it was something that was exciting and captured the interest of the men that saw it not only then but would continue to to remind them over and over again that that movie was coming, and they were looking forward to seeing it. Let's look at the text together, Mark chapter nine verses one through thirteen just follow along as I read it, page eight forty four but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. I've got to tell you just up front that this text is difficult. We're going to deal with a lot of stuff, and there's some stuff I won't deal with. We just can't for the sake of time. So just I'll point some of those things out for you this morning. But let's look at the context before we jump into this text. And let's consider, if you've been with us, or just by way of reminder, the recent timeline of the events that have taken place prior to the text or the events that the text had described. Going back approximately one week in the story, Jesus asked his disciples, and maybe you remember, he asked them a very direct question. And the question was, who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, or the other eleven, correctly answered by saying, you are the Christ. This was a title that was pregnant with meaning and significance. You like that description, pregnant? I like that. Do you guys know I'm a grandfather again? Hey, I thought I'd throw that out there. Yes, my daughter-in-law is with child, so I'm excited about that. So she is pregnant means things are bursting forth, or will be, in another eight months. In the same way, saying you are the Christ, is it's bursting forth with meaning and significance. And, and it all stems from what the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament that we refer to talk about or refer to as the Christ in the descriptions they give there. But the Jews were certainly confused about exactly how the Christ would accomplish God's will on the earth. We've looked at that. They were a little foggy when it came to understanding what exactly Christ was to do. They had an incomplete understanding that needed correcting, that needed refinement. So in response to Peter's acknowledgement that Jesus was the Christ... Jesus, for the first time in His ministry, as we've been looking through Mark, began to directly teach His disciples that He first had to suffer and die as the Christ. That was a shocker to them. He would be rejected by the very people who should have received the Christ with open arms. According to Jesus, three days after His death, He would rise again. As certain as His death was, His resurrection was also. But all the disciples seemed to hear was the first part of that promise that He was going to die. And that made no sense to them in their flawed understanding of the Christ and His mission. So we read, I think a couple weeks ago, Peter took it upon himself to rebuke Jesus for that idea that he would die and insisted that he would not let that happen to him. Without hesitation, Jesus cuts Peter off and rebukes him in front of the others and he says this, and maybe you'll remember this, get behind me, Satan. Some very strong language. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What follows after this discourse is Jesus' instructions about what it really means now to be one of His disciples. The bottom line, and we looked at this last week, and if you missed it, I would encourage you to get it. We have those available to you, the audio on our website, and the information is in the bulletin. A disciple of Jesus, according to Jesus, must be willing to put God's will for their life above everything else, regardless of the personal cost and faithfully follow Christ wherever that may lead them. That's it. Even if that means death. Now, one of the reasons Jesus gave for surrendering your life to Christ was the reality of the coming judgment. And again, we talked about this last week, but I just want to remind you of the context. If someone was unwilling to follow Jesus now, being ashamed of Him or and or what He said, then when Jesus comes in the glory of His Father and the holy angels, Jesus will be ashamed of them and they will be disowned by Jesus. Very serious. This coming in the glory of His Father that Jesus talked about is properly understood as Jesus' coming to establish the anticipated and glorious kingdom of God on earth. That's what that means. Jesus coming to establish the anticipated and glo- the anticipated glorious kingdom of God on earth. The disciples beloved were expecting Jesus to do that very soon. But now Jesus is telling him he's going to die. And that following him might cost them their lives too. Which to that they would be asking uh, what about the kingdom that you were supposed to come and establish and set up and we were supposed to rule and reign in with you? You're now talking about your death and about being your disciple could mean that we may even have to give up our lives too, or at least be willing to? How does that all work? See, what we know now, the disciples would eventually come to understand that there would be two comings of Christ. They thought there would be only one. And it wouldn't be until the second coming of Christ that He would fully then establish God's promised kingdom on earth. You and I know that now on this side, but they still had not understood those things. That meant that the glory of Christ in His kingdom that the disciples were anticipating would come not before His suffering or theirs for that matter. By God's map, or according to God's map, the gruesome cross was the way or path to the glorious crown. And that would have been and was hard news for these men to swallow. So, in order to help His men through this revelation, to accept it, He does something very unique to assure them that His destiny and theirs is still glorious. There would be suffering and darkness for a season on a level that they will have never even anticipated but Jesus' ultimate future and His disciples would be as bright as the sun. That's the context. So, how did Jesus do it? How did He reassure His men of these things? Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and they led them up on a high mountain by themselves and He was transfigured before them. Now you may not be aware of this, or you may, but there are at least six different interpretations about what Jesus meant when He told His wearied and bewildered disciples that some of them would not die before they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six different interpretations. Now, we are not going to look at all those different possibilities this morning. And I encourage you to look into this further, but after my studying the material... And looking at it, I am strongly convinced that the reasonable and natural explanation of this promise was a reference to the transfiguration that occurred a few days later. Which is why I read the two passages together. Which is why I believe the two passages are together in every gospel that has the story recorded. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew records this event just slightly gives us a little bit different detail. Matthew chapter 16 verse 28. Here Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. That means they will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's a little bit different slant on it. The Son of Man coming in His kingdom. As opposed to seeing the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Here's how one commentator states it and I think it's correct. The promise that some then standing before Him should not taste death until they had seen the Son of Man coming in His kingdom was fulfilled when after six days He took Peter, James, and John into a high mountain alone and was transfigured before them. These apostles now saw Him as He should appear when risen from the dead and glorified, He should come again from heaven to take His great power and to reign. They saw in the indescribable glory of His person and in the brightness around them a foreshadowing. Foreshadowing just simply means an indication of things to come. They saw a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God as it should come with power and were for a moment eyewitnesses to His majesty. They got a preview of His glory. A glimpse. Peter, over 35 years later after this event, remember, Peter was one of those three disciples that were on that mount in this moment. 35 years later, he was writing to the church about the glorious return of Christ and his eternal kingdom. By the way, beloved, most of the apostles were focused on that event and were trying to encourage their people to stay focused on this event. The church was being challenged by false teachers. This is in 2 Peter. 1 Peter is all about the suffering that's going on in the church. Because Nero was in charge and he was anti-Christian and doing incredibly vile and wicked things to those who profess the name of Christ, like burning them on stakes as candles and such and throwing them to animals to be devoured. The church was under persecution and Peter's writing to them in 1 Peter, Beloved, endure the suffering as Christ endured the suffering. When you get to 2 Peter, You've got false teachers coming in. Remember, it's 35 years later after Christ has died, resurrected, and ascended to His Father. And some false teachers are suggesting He's not coming again. Do we have that pick? See, there's nothing different about then than there is now. You know this, all this craziness that went on a week ago now? with Harold Camping and his ridiculous prophecies about the end of the world and the rapture and how we were all going to be gone and a big earthquake was going to come. Well, the atheists find this stuff very amusing. And so they have their own billboards. And they put these up in response because Harold Camping and the likes of him make the church look foolish. So they respond by saying, the rapture, you know, it's nonsense. 2,000 years of any day now. You can take that down. This is the same thing that the scoffers were saying in Peter's time. Only it wasn't 2,000 years, it was 35 years. And they were saying, yeah, yeah, you've been saying that, but where is the promise of His coming? Where is it, guys? You keep telling us to look that this glorious return is going to be here. Beloved, if He's not coming back, then we need to stop the service right now and and go do something else, because this is a phenomenal waste of time. But if He is coming back, then it will revolutionize our lives. It will change the entire direction of our lives, our purpose, our desires, our goals, our passions, if He is coming back. And beloved, with everything I've got, I tell you, He is coming back. And I don't care about this 2,000 years. What is a day to God? What is a 1,000 years to God? He'll come back on His time, according to His plan. Not according to mine, or when I think it's appropriate, and by the way, the longer he waits, the more people are rescued. So Lord, Deray, as long as it takes to bring your people into the fold of the church or the saving work of Jesus Christ, I say, do it, Lord, do it." Well, I don't even know where we got off and all that. I don't even know what just happened there. So I don't OK, here we are. So. Peter now, we're in Second Peter, he recalls this event 35 years prior in support of encouraging the church to keep looking, keep waiting, keep hoping, keep anticipating. And he says in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." He's referring now to the future coming and power that is going to be displayed at that time when the King returns to establish His promised kingdom on this earth. And he says this, "...but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory..." Or when He, that is, "...received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory..." This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. By the way, when you look at Matthew's account, that is included in Jesus or God's statement about Jesus that we don't see in Mark. This, I am well pleased. We heard this. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter takes his readers back now to this event, this transfiguration and says, we saw a preview of his glory. We know he is coming, and he is coming in that way. That's what he's saying. Peter got a preview of Jesus' glory, and it it couldn't it didn't let go of him it had him he couldn't forget it 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 moved him it motivated him just like a pathetic preview of a movie that we see in for the next three months or however long before it comes out, we're excited, we're anticipating it, we're thinking about it. This is 35 years later and Peter's still recalling this event. It reassured him that Jesus was the King he had been looking for and it fixed all his hopes on Christ's glorious return, beloved. Wow, that was a 20 minute kind of introduction, Jason. So I don't know what's going to happen this morning because we have five points. But let's, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do. This morning we're going to explore five truths of the transfiguration so that we might understand and look forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I didn't even have coffee. Mark chapter 9, look back at the text with me. God's blessed, inspired Word of God. Chapter 9, verse 2, And after six days Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. That's the word, that's the key. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So the first thing we're going to look about, look at or examine together is the clothes of Jesus. Believe it or not. Because Mark talks about them. So the original word here, translated transfigured, by the way, in verse 2, is the source of our English word metamorphosis. You might be familiar with that word. We use it to describe many things, but some, like the process of a caterpillar turning into a, a butterfly or a tadpole into a frog. Right, metamorphosis. The evidence... Or the idea of metamorphosis is a radical change or complete transformation. Same word used here for what happened with Jesus transfiguration, metamorphosis. The evidence for that transformation was seen in Jesus' clothes of all things. The evidence of that transformation. Luke says, and these are other accounts of the same story in the other Gospels Luke says his clothes became dazzling white. Chapter 9, verse 29. Matthew says his clothes became white as light. Chapter 17, verse 2. Mark uses the word, a word that's translated radiant, in verse 3. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, only here, but it was used in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a Greek translation, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. There, the word is used to describe a star. A star. So, what you have here is men doing their best to describe something that is really undescribable or indescribable. And that is a preview of the future glory of Christ. His glory, beloved, was so intense that it made His clothes shine like a bright star in the heavens on a clear night. Whiter than any bleach on earth could possibly make them. I mean, they're just doing the best they can to try to describe the whitest white and then to a hundred times that. It was so white. It is possible that this event occurred at night, so that would have just elevated the intensity of the brightness that was coming off of Jesus. And that's why Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we were eyewitnesses. We saw with our own eyes His majesty. That is, His glory and splendor. Beloved, when He is revealed again, it won't be as a helpless baby born in a feeding trough. He will come in power in the glory of His Father with the holy angels and the King of kings and the Lord of lords will show up on this earth and all who have believed will marvel. They will be in awe. They will have never seen anything like this at the display of Christ's power and majesty. You can read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 later. So that was the close of Jesus. It must have been spectacular. The company with Jesus. This gets a little more complicated. Mark chapter 9, verse 4. Look back at the text. And there appeared to them, while this is all going on, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, here again, and just, Bear with me, beloved. There's a great amount of speculation about why Elijah and Moses were there with Jesus during this transfiguration. In fact, some even ask the simple question, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Well, it's obvious because it was name tag Sunday. So that's... I. We don't know. I don't know how they knew. They knew. Somehow it was revealed to them. But people bring up sometimes awkward, weird things. They knew. The only thing we really know for sure about this event in this company is Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 31, that while they were there, they were talking to Jesus about His death. They call it the exodus or Departure. That would transpire in Jerusalem or take place in Jerusalem. That was the conversation between the three. I mean, that was part of it at least. That's all we know. But beyond that, the text doesn't give us a lot of information. But I believe we can still make some careful observations that might be helpful about Jesus' company and the significance of them being there at this great event. First, in biblical history, you need to know that both of these men played a very unique role in the revelation of God about the Messiah or that is, the coming Christ. And I've said this before, but it's helpful to say it again. When we say the word Messiah, it's the same as saying Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Yahshua HaMashiach, which is Hebrew. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus said of Moses in John chapter 4, verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would Believe Me. Why? For He wrote of Me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe My words? These are words that were spoken by Christ to the religious leaders who were challenging Jesus in His identity and mission. And He's saying, you guys claim to be followers of Moses, that you believe in Moses. He wrote about Me. You pretend to know His writings, but you reject Me? That's what he's saying. Moses wrote about, through the inspired Word of God, the Christ that would come. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call it the Torah or the Law. Sometimes it's just referred to as the books of Moses. In one example of Moses' writings where he was writing about Christ... We'll just look at it now. It's Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And this is what Moses wrote. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, how do we know that Moses was writing about Jesus? That's a good question. Well, Peter, the Apostle Peter, under the... Uh, Guidance and supervision of the Holy Spirit recorded these words in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, and you can just follow along. I'm not having you turn there just for sake of time. He said, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. I just got to stop right there. This is the same Peter that when Jesus said, I got to go and die, Peter said, I don't think so, we'll never let that happen to you. But now we're on the other side of the cross, and Peter now has a revelation. He has seen that the Word had revealed that the Christ had to suffer. He had to. But they missed it. That was the problem. They missed it. They thought one coming. He comes back. He establishes kingdom. We rule and reign. Yeah! But that's not how it went down. And there would be two comings. And that's what he was revealing to them. Verse... 19. He says, Repent therefore and turn again. He's speaking to the nation of Israel here. Just so you know. Specifically to the men of Israel. Repent. Turn again that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. What? What do you mean send Him? Because Peter knew He had to come again. It was a future coming. He had come already. Now he's saying you must repent and turn the nation of Israel so that Christ will come again. Then it says in verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. And so he gives us an example of one. Verse 22, Moses said... The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So this reference by Moses is to Christ. And here he is standing with Christ on the mount as Jesus is in all of His glory fully displayed. He is that great prophet that Moses had said would come into the future. Regarding Elijah, let's think, just take a second look at him or look at him for a second. Remember that when Jesus asked the people, who do you think that I am in Mark 8.28? That some thought he might be Elijah. Do you guys remember that? They said, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say a prophet. Why would they say that? Why would they think Jesus was Elijah? Well, 400 years prior to Jesus walking on the earth, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, last prophet that God used to speak to the nation of Israel, followed by 400 years of silence before John the Baptist showed up and began to say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. One of the last things that prophet said was in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And here it is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. As a result of this prophecy, and we don't have time to get into who is Elijah and and what kind of prophet was he and all of those things, but just know there was a prophecy made that Elijah would come before this great and terrible day of the Lord where judgment would come upon the earth and the kingdom would be established once and for all, for all eternity. So as a result, the nation was anxiously waiting for and looking for the return of Elijah because they believed he had to come prior to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth and the righteous rule and reign of the Christ, the prophesied one. Now because of the miraculous nature of Jesus' ministry, meaning that He did miracles, And Elijah's ministry had miracles also. He did some incredible things, which we're not going to get into this morning. Beyond that, Jesus came doing miracles and saying something. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So they would maybe think, this guy might be Elijah returned and he's doing these miracles and he's telling the people to prepare for the coming of of the kingdom that has been prophesied that we have been waiting for. But, beloved, um, in the transfiguration, we see that there were three people there. Right? There was Elijah, there was Moses, and there was Jesus. So now it is very clear that Elijah is not Jesus. It is very clear. And beyond that, it would make them think about the whole reality of this coming kingdom again. Because you have all of the key players. Moses prophesying about the one who would come and be like him in some way, ruling his, leading his people out of bondage and ruling and reigning. And now you have Elijah, the one that was going to come prior to all of these incredible events. they are all three standing here. This was quite a crowd, quite a mountaintop. It's important to remember as we think about this that the entire scene is a preview of the glory of Christ that is to come. Just remember that. It's a preview of the glory of Christ that is to come. So what you have is Moses and Elijah's I keep confusing him with Elijah. That's easy to do. There are two prophets. Elijah with a J, Help testify to the reality that Jesus is the great Christ and the prophecies about His coming kingdom are not a fantasy or a false hope, but they are a pending reality. That's what's going on. However, at this stage in history, their dialogue, according to Luke, was not about his glorious return, but about his humiliating death on a cross. So, Mark chapter 9, look back at the text. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. They were terrified. Luke's account says that when the company of Jesus, Moses and Elijah, begin to leave, it was then that Peter suggests or makes the suggestion that he builds three temporary shelters or tents for them. The sense is, as best I can understand it, is Peter didn't want this glorious moment to end. This was phenomenal. So he's in a sense saying, wait, don't leave. I'll build you some shelters that you might stay here. Here. But according to the text, it says he really didn't know what to say. He was just flabbergasted. The whole thing was quite overwhelming. And that's interesting that Mark records that because we believe that Mark got most of his information from Peter. So it makes sense that Peter said, here's what I said, but to be honest, he probably didn't say that, but he didn't use that dumb phrase, but he said, you know, Mark, I didn't know what to say. I was so terrified. I didn't even know what to do. I was just taken back by the whole thing. So I just thought maybe they wouldn't leave. But Moses and Elijah had no intentions of staying, beloved. They had no intentions of staying. Why? Because the kingdom of God had not arrived yet. It had not arrived. And evidently, God wanted to make it clear that the focus of the disciples needed to be on Jesus and Him alone. It was Him and Him alone that they needed to listen to and obey. And that takes us to the cloud over Jesus. Number three. And a cloud overshadowed them. Verse nine, chapter 9, verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Beloved, in the Old Testament, a cloud was used or often used to describe a harboring for god 's presence, a, a vehicle for God, if you would, among his people and and from out of the cloud, he would often be recorded speaking to the people. You can see that if you take notes in exodus sixteen ten or chapter nineteen verse nine or chapter twenty four verse fifteen sixteen Leviticus chapter sixteen verse two or numbers eleven twenty five that practice of God showing up in a cloud and revealing himself to his people was repeated here in Mark. On the mountain. Matthew chapter 17, verse 6 adds that when they heard God speak, they fell on their faces and were terrified. See, if God really showed up and spoke to you, it wouldn't be a just a normal conversation. Every time you see this, the people are terrified, falling on their face. Coming down out of heaven are, is this voice, this incredible voice, and the words were simple and to the point. And this time they were made directly to the three disciples. And he says this, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. I say this time because Jesus, or God, made a similar statement, if you remember back in Mark, in the beginning, when the baptism took place of Jesus. And there it's recorded that God's voice was heard booming out of heaven but there he spoke directly to his son and he said you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased mark chapter 1 verse 11 but here god is not talking to his son but about his son directly to his disciples and in that he includes a very strict command for them to follow bottom line listen to him Moses and Elijah are gone now. That's what the text says. They hear the voice, the cloud disappears. Moses and Elijah aren't on the scene. The only one standing there is Jesus, emphasized, and Him alone. So keep your focus and eyes on Christ. He alone is worthy. When He tells you that He must die, Peter, do not rebuke Him. But instead, remember His glory that you saw on this mountain. Peter, His death will not end your hopes and dreams, but is a necessary step in my plan to making all of those hopes and dreams a certain and absolute reality. In a sense, I think that's what's going on. Listen to Him. Beyond that, He's going to tell you stuff like, you're going to die too, Peter. You're going to be taken and handled in a way that you don't want to be handled. Listen to Him. And remember the preview of what you saw here on this mountain because it's going to get you through. So then you have the charge from Jesus. Number 4, Mark chapter 9, verse 9. And they were coming down the mountain and He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I'm going fast, beloved. I just hope you can follow along. On several occasions, Jesus had instructed people, as we've seen in Mark, to keep silent or to tell no one about His miraculous events that they had personally experienced or witnessed. We've seen that. Already, Why is Jesus telling them to be quiet? And we've dealt with that. In fact, he even instructed his disciples to not say anything about the reality that he was the Christ. That's in Mark chapter 8, verse 30. So Peter makes this confession. You're the Christ. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Now we talked about that, so I'm not going to get into that now. But here again, he is telling his men they cannot say anything about what they just saw. But this time he puts a time limit on their silence. He hasn't done that before. He just simply says, shut your mouth, don't say anything. This time he says, don't say anything until a certain event happens. After Jesus' death and resurrection, they were permitted, encouraged through the text, to share what they saw. Why? Because at this point in history, a more complete understanding of Christ's mission was achievable, was possible. They could start to understand there would be two comings, not one as they thought. At, at this time, we know the disciples are still confused. We're going to see that in a moment. And they could not understand how death could possibly be associated in any way with a reigning king. They did not understand that the cross was the path to the crown. They did not understand that the cross was the way for them to be able to enter into that kingdom because by that cross they would be forgiven of their sins and they would be imputed or declared righteous having the righteousness of Christ credited to their account. They didn't see that. So the cross was paramount of most importance in order to get to the kingdom. But that would require two comings. So after His death, they would understand that Jesus had to die. And it would be important, beloved, for them to remember that and tell others that He was going to return one day in all the glory that they had seen on that mountain. You saw Him die. You saw Him be murdered, tortured, buried. Some of them saw Him resurrected. Not all. Not all were witnesses to the resurrection. But Jesus now has shown them what will certainly come in the future and this was what they were to tell the people after He was resurrected again. He is coming again. And let me tell you something, He's coming in the way that the Bible anticipated in a way that is so unbelievable. His glory made His clothes shine so bright, whiter than any bleach on earth could possibly get Him like the stars of heaven shining exceedingly was His glory. That's how He's coming, beloved. So this transfiguration then would serve as an anchor for the hope that the promises of the kingdom were not lost after Jesus' death and resurrection, but that they would, Jesus would necessarily have to come again in order to bring the fulfillment of all the prophets had said would happen. In order for God to display His glory through His Son, Jesus Christ, in the way they saw on that mountain, He's going to have to come again because it did not happen at His first coming. Not in that way. And the kingdom was not established as they had hoped. That is why in Acts chapter 1, they're still asking Jesus Is now the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? They're still looking. They're still waiting. They're still hoping. Finally, the confusion about Jesus. We'll just buzz through this. Number 5, Mark 9, 10-13 says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah might come? And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Wow, that's a mouthful so there's a couple of things here that the disciples the three disciples are puzzled about the first, according to the text, was Jesus' comment that they could tell others about the transfiguration after he rose from the dead. They were confused the text says but The idea of resurrection was not new to the Jews, beloved. It wasn't like that threw them for a loop. Resurrection, what is he talking about? We've never heard of such a thing. The majority of Jews believe there would be a resurrection in the last day or at the end of the age, meaning at the end of time when God comes and establishes His kingdom. So you see that in John chapter 11 where you have the story of Lazarus verses 23 and 24. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Martha, his sister, and Jesus are having a conversation. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He's just telling her what's about to happen. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She obviously didn't understand it was about to happen right there. But she knew there was a resurrection in the future where all people would be raised and judged by God in the last day and some would enter into His kingdom and some would enter into eternal torment. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. There you have a recording of the Sadducees coming to Him and Mark says, who say there is no resurrection. This was a small group of religious leaders and this element rejected the idea of a literal resurrection, that our bodies would be resurrected again one day from the grave. I only bring that up to show you that the idea of a resurrection was obviously prevalent. It was in the culture. They understood it. They knew it because the Old Testament referred to it. But this particular group was rejecting it. So the resurrection was not what they were confused about. The problem Jesus' disciples were having was that a resurrection meant that He would die. They What? If He is the Christ, then we should expect the kingdom of God to be established on earth. How does dying fit into that plan? It's not the resurrection they were confused about. It was the fact that that meant He had to die. Beyond that, why would He be resurrected in the last day along with everyone else? Because in their minds, that's what they're still thinking. The resurrection of the last day. For that is the day of God's judgment. And by the way, why would He tell us to wait until then, to tell everyone what we saw. Because that's the end of the age. That's what they're thinking. That's why they're confused. It didn't make any sense. Because they didn't see two comings. The second point of confusion was how to relate Elijah in his coming to Jesus and... or and his coming. and his coming to... or Jesus' coming. Now again, there are many opinions about how I understand this passage. And, and we don't... I don't want to get lost... Maybe some of you, you might, I may have already lost some of you just because I'm talking so fast, and forgive me for that. You can play the tape back and you can slow it down. They have this cool technology. But there are many opinions about this, but let me just try to help you through it very quickly. The Jews were waiting for the kingdom of God to become a reality on earth. The kingdom would be ruled by God's anointed one, the Messiah or Christ. This Messiah Christ would be a descendant of the family of David who was the great king of Israel. That's why when you look at Matthew, the genealogy starts with the reality that this Jesus comes from the line of Abraham and the line of David, tracing it all the way back. This is a descendant of David, and that was huge. They knew this would be the king of kings, exceeding even David and his rule and reign. But before that happened, according to the prophet Malachi that we just looked at a minute ago, Elijah would come first in order to prepare the people for the coming king and his kingdom. And he would lead them to repentance. So, here you go. We're we're on the mountain. We've got this transfiguration, this metamorphosis of Jesus shining forth like the glory, standing with this company, Moses and Elijah. They see Him and no doubt they start thinking, uh, wait a minute, doesn't Elijah have to come before the Christ? Jesus. As the scribes have interpreted the Old Testament. And... That is true. Jesus then confirms that in verse 12, the accuracy of that statement. But before, after He does that, He says, yes, that is right. Elijah must come first. But immediately, He then points out the deficiency of their understanding regarding Jesus Christ Himself. He says in verse 12, the second part, and how is it written of the Son of Man that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Okay, you guys got that right. That is correct. Elijah is coming first. Now let's try out another one that you obviously have missed. How is it also written in those very scriptures that talk about Elijah coming that the Son of Man must suffer and be treated with contempt, rejected to the uttermost? How is that possible? In other words, can you explain that? Because if you can't, you still don't get it. And any idea about My death or resurrection or a second coming would continue to puzzle you and leave you in awe. My glory you saw on the mountain, in other words, was a preview of the things to come. It was not here to stay. It will not come immediately. It will not come again until after sometime after my death and resurrection. It cannot happen until I am utterly rejected and killed. That's what he's saying. So then he says in chapter 9, verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What? Okay. Elijah must come first. You have to suffer and die. They're still confused about that, by the way. And then you're telling me He has come. Matthew 17:13, same story, says this. Then the disciples understood that He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this is where it could get confusing. So it, it probably already is. It's even confusing to me to some degree. But when John the Baptist was asked if he was Elijah, he was asked that question directly. He said no. John chapter 1, verse 21. He said, No, I'm not Elijah. The angel, though, who told Zechariah, John's daddy, about the future birth of his son, John the Baptist, said these words in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And he, talking about John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him. Before him, who's that? The Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? Well, theoretically prepared for the coming of the kingdom. The only problem is, beloved, the people didn't repent. They never repented. They rejected their king and they murdered Him and crucified Him. So the kingdom could not come and it will not come until the nation of Israel bows their knee and calls Jesus the Christ their Christ. And that is yet to come in the future. And that is what we are looking for. So is He Elijah or isn't He? Well, yes and no. Don't you love that answer? That sounds like a politician. Yes and no. He was not Elijah, literally, but in his ministry to the nation of Israel, he represented Elijah. He was a type of Elijah. He was a as a forerunner of Christ, preparing the people for their king. But as I said, the people did not repent and instead they killed their king. So just as there are two comings of Christ, there had to be two forerunners. Alva J. McLean says it this way, the one who wrote The Greatness of the Kingdom, a book I have highly recommended in the past. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Messiah at his first coming when he offered to Israel the kingdom. Elijah will be the forerunner of Messiah when he comes a second time to establish his kingdom. But the mystery of these two forerunners could not be cleared up until Messiah arrived for the first time and had revealed that there would be a second coming. Bottom line, Jesus is not finished making history, beloved. His mission is not yet complete. The cross was the path to the crown. He is coming again one day to claim what is rightfully His when He returns in all of His glory and splendor and majesty. And finally, wow, you guys have been patient. You have been patient. I thank you for that. in I will owe a great debt to the nursery workers. Application just a little bit. And here it is for us. What do we do with all this? Well, here's something we can do with this. Glory will follow the cross. That was the message as they saw the preview on the mountain. I am going to die, but do not forget and remember what you were eyewitnesses to. My glory, just as you see here, will come in full display when I come to this world the second time to establish my righteous kingdom. Glory, beloved, follows suffering. It follows suffering. That was the glory. Jesus' glory would follow His suffering. And guess what? Glory for us follows suffering. It is no different as His disciples, as His followers, as those who are willing even to lay down their lives in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, not being ashamed of Him, but honoring Him and speaking of Him and living for Him, that means that for us too, glory is not for today, but for a future event that we will share in His glory. Glory. Romans 8, let me read this to you. Chapter 8, verse 16. Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He's writing to Christians. And if children, then heirs. You know what heirs are? They're entitled to an inheritance. Here he says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also might be in the future glorified with Him. Then verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need, beloved... And there, write down these passages if you're looking because we're not going to go through them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and see in that this man who was on that hill and how consumed he is with the glory that is to come. It, it did not let go of him. It had him in its grip. We need through the Word of God, somehow, by eyes of faith, to be there with those men on that mountain and see Jesus in all of His glory as He has been revealed to us. I know we weren't there, but we need to see it with eyes of faith. Knowing that He is coming again. Meaning that the suffering... And I'm not talking about normal suffering that every Joe experiences. I'm talking about the kind of suffering you experience when you take a stand for Christ. When you are rejected. When you are ostracized. When you are made a fool of. When atheists post their ridiculous signs. all of it, When you speak up for Christ. When you stand up for righteousness and people come against you. That's the kind of suffering I'm talking about. Now, in this life, there will be suffering. And what the prosperity teachers do over and over again is they say, no, now is the time of your glory. That's wrong, beloved. It's not biblical. And so the church is confused. Wait a minute, I shouldn't be suffering. I'm supposed to be living the glorious life. No, you aren't. That was a preview of things to come. And they are coming. But as Paul says, we suffer now. If we suffer now. In fact, it's an identity. It identifies us as those that are His. As He suffered, we to some degree will suffer too. And if we do, it is a testimony to the reality that we are children of God. That we are heirs of God. Heirs with Christ and His coming Kingdom. So I don't go looking for suffering but I also don't run away from it. I don't deny it. I don't say this shouldn't be happening and ask God, why? What do you mean why? Your glory is yet to come when He comes in all of His glory. Let's pray. Father God, I uh, forgive me for being so long-winded and talking so much. Father, I, I just pray that some of this stuff would stick and would work like potatoes on our bones when we eat them it just it wouldn't let go of us father that we would start to see things differently that we would start to see the world differently that we would we would start to realize what this life is all about not about our glory or about living the good life father indeed we can enjoy the many blessings that you do bestow on us in your grace and mercy but father the, the real blessing as we've seen revealed in your word is yet to come And so we live in light of that. Keeping our eyes focused. Helping us to keep on track and realizing in this life there will be suffering as we take a stand for Christ. Not to to shy away from that, but to embrace that. Looking for and longing for and anticipating the day when Christ will come in all His glory and then there will be no question about His divine authority and office as King, as Ruler of this world, as Creator, as the One whom every knee will bow before. Father, give us eyes to see a glimpse of His glory. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.